So last week, we looked at this whole issue of Paul talking to uh, slaves and telling them to obey their masters. And uh, if that's causing alarm for you, go back and listen to the sermon last week. I'm not going to get back into that. I want to move forward in this uh, verse today, and um, I want to look a little bit about uh, what Paul is saying in terms of uh, uh, his command to these slaves to to actually look beyond their masters um, in their job. Um, but as we were looking at last week, one of the things that came out is that when Paul affirms these slaves uh, in their work, it's, it's just really behind that, the first century hearers would have heard this amazing embrace of menial work. That's what would have stood out to them uh, within their context, that God loves work. God is a God who works, and God created us in his image so that we would also work, and work is a good thing. But is that really the whole story? Is that your job? Is, is every time you have to get up and go to work just this wonderful delight? You know, is, is work always some uh, great thing that is just so good, um, and you know you're a mask of God, and you're producing human flourishing, and there's just nothing but joy when you work, just nothing but joy. Maybe that's you. God bless you, all right? But the reality is, is that most of us know work is a mixed bag, You have your good days, you have your bad days, you have your ugly days. It's complex. And the good news is, is that the Bible actually recognizes this. The Bible has a very sophisticated way of understanding the complexity of work. In Genesis chapter 1, as we saw last week, God created and God is a God of work. And God then created human beings in his image. And work is good. Work is part of our DNA. But the story goes on. And in Genesis chapter 3, the story, the plot thickens, right? The story unfolds. And we have the original couple there in the garden, and God sets them there, and there's only one rule, only one rule. There is a tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And why is there a tree there that they're not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, they're not to eat of that because essential to relationships is freedom to be choosing that person. If you force somebody to love you, it's not love. And it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the idea behind that is is that God is the ultimate one who says what is good and what is evil. We don't get to pick that and choose that on our own. We trust God for that. So we're not allowed to be the ones that adjudicate what is good and evil. That ultimately resides with God. And as the story goes, uh, we know that they ate that fruit. Um, And when the first couple eats of that tree, it's not merely two people doing what they want to do within the privacy of their own little garden, okay? It's actually deeply interconnected, and the whole creation eventually becomes unraveled. And this is one of the uh, things that, if you're not a Christian, might be something that you might wrestle with when you begin to enter into Christianity, is that Christians believe that the world is deeply interconnected, much like the theory of relativity, you know, a butterfly down in the Amazon can, you know, cause a, a storm, you know, it's, it's deeply interconnected, and you can't be a serial murderer, you know, uh, you know, in your spare time, and not have that bleed out into your marriage and other things in spite of, you know, the TV series Dexter. Like, it's, that's just not the way the world is. And, and that's what happens uh, when this couple rebels against God. Actually, theologians call this the fall. It's really the story of how this deeply interwoven web of connections that undergird our world then become fundamentally fractured when humanity turns away from God and everything begins 
falling apart in certain ways. There's a certain degrading that happens. And so we're going to look at how this touched work, and that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we are going to look at how this touched work. And are my slides working? There we go. Yes, they are. Work under the curse. Work under the curse. And so when the couple eats this fruit, it touches everything. Philosopher Al Walters writes this, the Bible teaches plainly that Adam and Eve's fall into sin was not just an isolated act of disobedience, but an event of catastrophic significance for creation as a whole. The effects of sin touch all of creation. No created thing is in principle untouched by the corrosive effects of the fall. That's what we mean by total depravity. Not that everything is as bad as it could be, but that everything has been touched by the fall. Whether we look at societal structures such as the state or family or cultural pursuits such as art or technology or bodily functions such as sexuality or eating or anything at all within the wide scope of creation, we discover that the good handiwork of God has been drawn into the sphere of mutiny against God. The whole creation, Paul writes, is subject to bondage and decay. So sin affects every aspect of life. It's not just a personal thing. It's not just something that is private. It, it, it impacts our public life. It impacts societal life. It impacts every aspect of life. And if you, you can see, this is going to have an impact on work, no matter what area you work in. Now, some of you actually have jobs because of the fall. I'm looking at my dentist over here who just filled a cavity for me this week. I don't know if I'd have cavities with the, if the fall hadn't happened, but he might be out of a job. I don't know. You know, Some of you, your entire livelihood is based on trying to deal with the effects of the fall. You know, um, Some of you in the medical professions and, um, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but it impacts every area of life. Um, and what's really interesting here is the two key ways uh, we experience this brokenness is actually recorded in the story there. Uh, it's found in the two great tasks of life that the two image bearers were give, given. You know, the, the image of God is reflected both in male and female. And, and as the fall unfolds, we hear uh, these two things happen. First, to the female, God says, I will make, your pain, I will make uh, you have pains in childbearing, and they will be severe. With painful labor will you give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, and then to Adam, the male counterpart of the image of God, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So, for our two uh, counterpoints, uh, the male and the female, we see that the two great tasks in life, which they represent, one being relationships with the female, she kind of is representing that part of the image of God, and the male being work, right? So, the two things you want for a successful life, you want the people that are close to you, you want to have successful relationships with those closest to you, and you want to actually do something with your life, right? If you kind of pull that off, you've got a good life. And these two image bearers actually reflect the way in which both our relationships and our work are impacted by the fall. And in fact, there's a certain kind of interchangeableness in those two primary tasks. Uh, it's no accident, as theologian W.R. Forster notes, in language after language, the same word is used for toil and childbearing. 
The shared word is labor. The word labor is used in language after language for childbearing. So, so, and so they get, you know, they're deeply interconnected. I don't know if you've ever been in a job where you're like, you know, I like the job, but I have to work with this person. The relationship's no good. And so then the job is soured. Or, conversely, I like the relationship, but this job is terrible. <laughs> you know? And uh, so it, it, they, they always come together like that. Um, and they deeply impact each other. So the Bible clears, clearly tells us that while work is not a result of the fall, work is something that we are made for, we have a God who works, work is profoundly impacted by the fall. And this is due to both ruptures in relationships and a rupture in the fabric of creation itself. And this is the expression, uh, thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. Uh, that, that lets us know that there's something that, that the world is not going to go the direction you're hoping it's going to go all the time. Work is going to be difficult. Uh, and so, uh, God's original design is lost in a certain sense in terms of how work is meant to be. And so, work is difficult. In Romans 8, to 23, Paul tells us that as a result of the fall, creation now groans as a result of the massive and devastating effect. Uh, there is a pain in this world, and humanity experiences that pain, particularly as we seek to fulfill the mandate to form and fill the world, which we saw in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. And so under the curse, uh, the kind of joy and natural kind of uh, facility of work is tainted. And work oftentimes uh, involves pain and conflict and envy and fatigue and unmet goals and disappointment and all kinds of challenges. Can I get an Amen. All right. Some of you are not awake yet, you know. <laughs> Amen. I'm just trying to stay awake. Hey, that's, that's part of your work right now, okay? <laughs> a guy by the name of Studs Terkel, awesome name, Studs, all right, awesome name. Studs Terkel wrote this, work is about violence to the spirit and the body. It's about ulcers and accidents. It's about nervous breakdowns, as well as about kicking the dog around. It's above all about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for those walking among the great many of us. Most of us, when we think about work, we don't think of it as being this incredibly satisfying part of our life. Now, there are good days. There are bad days. Um, but it doesn't matter if you work from home or the classroom or the, the uh, factory floor or outdoors or in an office. Um, work can be a source of great frustration in our lives. Uh, there's lingering unemployment, there's computer viruses, there's debilitating injuries, there's difficult customers, uh, there's the need to downsize, there's dealing with a mountain of dirty laundry, facing urgent deadlines, writing and rewriting policies, trying to fix the cavity on this pastor that will not stop talking. I mean, people face all kinds of problems in their work, so, uh, and it's all part of the thorns and thistles. Uh, I like to call, you know, just simply the Home Depot effect. You know, if you're going to plan a project, uh, all you do is you think to yourself how many times it's going to take for you to go, to go to Home Depot for the project, and then multiply that by three, right? Because <laughs> as soon as you open up whatever that is, you know, there will be thorns and thistles. That's just the way it's going to go. So whereas before uh, the fall, our work was fruitful, work outside the garden can be fruitless. We can find ourselves unable to fulfill what we can envision, and sometimes we see other people gaining traction in their work when we're doing the same thing and we're gaining no traction. 
Uh, there's just so many different ways we can talk about this. So one of the aspects of this result of the fall is there is a certain kind of difficulty in our work. But that's not all. You know, Paul is talking to slaves, and Paul is, and, and it's good that Paul's talking to slaves because, you know, you want to talk about jobs that are hard? You know, if Paul would have said, and now to you creatives that are enjoying your wonderful moment where you're doing everything you love out of your self-expression, we'd be like, huh, that's not really helpful. Paul said, now you slaves, and who wants that job? You know, and why don't we want it? Because it's difficult, because it's hard, because it's menial, but also because it's repetitive. And you wonder, like, you know, okay, let's just do this day after day after day. And that's another problem as a result of the fall is, is that work can start to feel like it is pointless. And there's a book uh, in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, that actually talks about this aspect of work. The book of Ecclesiastes charts the reflections of a philosopher named Koheleth who seeks to discover the meaning of life from the vantage point of under the sun. And that's a shorthand for with nothing bigger than simply what your five senses can sense, nothing, no meta-narrative, nothing spiritual, nothing, no kind of like larger story in order to explain life. And he looks at life just purely in terms of a birth-to-death narrative. And in the first two chapters, he looks at the usual source people turn to to find a meaningful life. He looks at learning and education. He looks at leisure and pleasure. And then finally, he talks about how people look to achievement and work in order to create some kind of meaningful life. And this is uh, something people do in order to feel a sense of accomplishment, some kind of lasting achievement. But as Koheleth notes, uh, even if you're one of the few lucky ones to have great accomplishment. Um, without belief in something more than a birth-to-death narrative, that achievement is ultimately vacuous. Uh, whether it, it happens quickly or slowly, the results of toil will be wiped away from history. Kohel says, when I saw that eventually I would die and my stuff would, all my accomplishments would eventually, you know, be handed on to whoever, there goes your trophy to, you know, your great-grandson, you know, you worked so hard for and, you know, ends up on his, <laughs> who knows what, you know, you know, he uses it to wrap, I don't know what, his... Cub Scout things on, whatever. This is what Koel says, I hated all things I had toiled for the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. They will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my efforts and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labor under the sun. So maybe you've had that thought before, where you feel like you're just a cog in a machine. You just think, what is the point? You know, I'm going to work and work and work. And sometimes it feels like, you know, I get rid of, you know, this, you know, maybe you work as a probation officer. It's like, okay, I, I dealt with this person. They're back on their feet. They got a job. They're probably not going to commit more crimes. But then you get the next one, you know, maybe you're a social worker. It's the next one. There's the next person with the problem. I mean, it's just, you know, there's a new pile of email every Monday. And after a while, it can just start to feel like, it all is going nowhere. To quote Lincoln Park, I tried so hard and got so far. You know the end of it, right? <laughs> yeah. But in, but in the end, it doesn't even matter, right? Um, and, and this is part of work under the curse. Not only is it difficult, but it can feel pointless. Uh, there's a character in the movie Chariots of Fire. If you've never seen the movie, if, if you know, if you're, I don't know when did that movie come out, but, you know, if you're younger and you've never heard of this movie, you need to go get it. It's a really good movie. And it's about two Olympic athletes that are competing with very different understandings of what they're doing. 
Uh, but one of them uh, is, is this guy by the name of Harold Abrams. And he's struggling with why he's pouring himself into this gold medal like he is. And at one point he says this, I hated all the things, oh, I'm sorry, he says, I've, I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. Maybe that's you this morning. I've labored around and bullied for this day in and out, in and out of bad weather like a madman, but for what? In one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes, I'll look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence, but will I? I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. What he's saying is the scariest thing ultimately is not winning or losing, but it's facing the fact that even an Olympic gold medal cannot justify our existence. It can't ultimately be the weighty thing that we need in order to look at our lives and say, this was worth my efforts. And if you doubt that, you just need to look at Michael Phelps' post-Olympic gold medal depression, Look at all the things that uh, Caitlyn Jenner's done to try to find happiness after the gold medals. As Kohelet, the philosopher, says, even our greatest achievements retain vanity. That word is hevel, which means a, li- a lightness of being. They don't weigh enough. They don't, they're not enough to sink our feet and to feel like my life has purpose and momentum. The joy has a shelf life. And we need something beyond it. And I know, I, I uh, you know, in 2020, my book came out, man, for about two weeks, I was like, whew, I was filled with so much joy. I was looking at that thing. I was holding it. Yours is coming soon, Dave. I was holding I'm looking at it, you know, like, there it is. There it, I did it. You know, people, hey, congratulations. You know, and then pretty soon it's like, all right, all right, kind of what's, what's next, you know? And then someone's like, so what are you writing next? You're like, ah, yeah, yeah, this is going to wear off, huh? And then pretty soon you get a critic that you're like, you know, I better write about that person. And, you know, it, it wears off. It just wears off. So Paul is addressing these slaves. They're Christians. Their work is difficult. It's repetitive, and it can feel pointless. And, and Paul's advice is particularly pertinent, actually, to all of us, because work has this this level. And here's what Paul's advice is. And so let's, let's talk about what it looks like for work to be redeemed. This is a two-point message, just like last week. I'm into kind of two-point messages. So work is under the curse, but how is work redeemed? How is work, how can we, we uh, how should we respond in the face of this? And here's Paul's advice. Paul's advice is pretty simple. He says, fire your boss. Fire your boss. Well, well, not exactly, but he says, demote them. They're not your true person you're working for. You no longer work for the shareholders. You no longer are reporting to the board. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. Paul recognizes that when we work, there's nothing wrong with desiring affirmation for our work. C.S. Lewis has a whole essay called The Way to Glory, if you ever want to think about reward and what's the role of reward. But Paul is saying you're looking to the wrong place for your affirmation. Look what he says in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Yeah, do what they're saying. He's not saying rebel against them. And do it, not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Not with eye service. I like the King James Version says, as a man pleaser. 
don't be a people pleaser. You know, people pleasing is where you give this false impression of your job. You know, when the boss comes around, you start working a little faster. Like, he's coming, he's coming. Okay, okay, get, uh, all right. Ah, let's look like we're busy. Giving it, Kenya goes to stores where part of her job, and when she shows up, I know suddenly every, everybody gets moving a little faster, right? So people pleasing or man pleasing is where you give a false impression of what you do, how much you do, so that it will impress the people around you, regardless of whether or not it actually matches with what you're doing. And, um, and if you ever had to work with a, with a man pleaser or a people pleaser who's just simply working to please you, it's exhausting. Because as soon as you're gone, then you get a different quality. You have to constantly touch base with them. It's like, ah, you know. <laughs> Sometimes when you're a mother and you're working with children, it's like, it's like, you know, suddenly, yeah. Anyways, we could go in there. But, you know, a good test to see whether or not you are working as unto the Lord, is to ask the question, does my work change when the person who is my boss comes into the room? Because remember, if we're working for the Lord, the Lord sees everything. The Lord never leaves us. The Lord knows everything we're doing at all times. And so there shouldn't be this big jump in change in our performance. And as a result of that, if we're working for the Lord, our work is actually going to be far more fruitful. We'll be a person of integrity who is the same person when no one's looking. And, uh, and so you actually just do a better job. You know, I love cathedrals. Um, and one of the interesting things about cathedrals is cathedrals were built by these medieval stonemasons who were the unsung geniuses. Uh, they, they were anonymous. We don't really know who they were. And they liked it that way. That wasn't their goal. But they were geniuses. They hired workers. They secured materials. They managed enormous construction projects. Their names aren't recorded, uh, but that was all right for them because they wanted to glorify God. And one of the things that's interesting about medieval cathedrals is that oftentimes the best artwork is where places where no one can see it. No one can see it. You know, high up on the columns, high up where no one's going to see it except for God. Is there anything you do in your job where no one can see it except for God? No one can see it except for God. The Shakers were famous for making beautiful furniture, actually kind of the forerunners of modern, modern furniture. Um, they saw furniture making as a spiritual task. Put your hands to work and your heart to God, the old Shaker saying is. Uh, and they would um, oftentimes also inscribe little things in a hidden place just to God, the one they're working for. And they would, this is really interesting, they would even leave little imperfections as an act of humility towards God to recognize their own weakness. They'd leave it in a place where it wouldn't be offensive to whoever's buying it, but that was just their own way of constantly checking themselves. Like, who am I doing this for, really? Is this an act of love and service to God? Uh, they were playing by a different set of rules. They had a different game going on. Uh, I know of a, a law student who, um, she, didn't, uh, she, she did violin as her undergrad and then to please her parents, she went on and did a graduate degree and, and went to law school. And, but her whole aim was to be in the orchestra. Uh, but the orchestra position never opened up. And so eventually she um, went it, had to get a job, so she started working at a law, school, at, at a, at a law firm. And the whole time, her whole game was to eventually become in the or- get a part of the orchestra. And so while she was at the law firm, it was like, well, this is not, you know, I'm just going to do my best as a Christian, 
at this law firm, uh, but, you know, I have another game. And, um, and she said a strange thing happened. Because she wasn't there to somehow become partner, uh, she just simply did her best and just was herself. One day she was called in, and she had a crisis because they called her in and said, we want to make you partner. And she's thinking, like, I'm the only person here that doesn't want to be partner. <laughs> Why did you call me to be partner? And they said, because you're not playing all the games everybody's playing here. Everyone's trying to look good. Everyone's trying to suck up. And you're the only one that will tell the truth. You're the only one that's not a people pleaser here. You're the only one that's working with a different kind of mindset. What is that? Well, for her, it was, you know, she was like, I'm not, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to be part. I just want to do my job and just speak the truth. And I think that when we're working for the Lord, there's a certain freedom that comes. There's a certain freedom that comes when we're working for the Lord. And, um, and, and what is that freedom? Well, the freedom is, is that we're, we're working for the Lord. We're working out of a different narrative. Uh, Paul says, uh, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since, and here, listen to this. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward in the Lord Christ you are serving. Paul's saying you need to completely reframe your work. Place it in a larger story. Place it in a larger narrative. You are going to receive an inheritance. Look beyond birth to death and recognize that you're part of a larger story. This life is not all that there is. This is the preamble. And if you're going to work well, you have to look beyond your death to see actually where the reward is going to be. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, when you work, what story are you working out of? Work out of the story of what Christ has done for you, about where your life is going. Work out of the story that your life is bigger than just birth to death, than under the sun. Work out of the story that says, I'm not working for a paycheck. I'm not working for a vacation. Are you kidding me? That's peanuts compared to what Jesus offers. Your work in the Lord is not in vain, Paul says in Corinthians. Talking about the, 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 a parallel passage here. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as for the Lord, all your heart, not for human masters, since you know that you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as reward. Colossians 3.24, that's our, our text. Paul says almost the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the resurrection. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We just sang the song, God of my present, God of my future. Right? What were we doing? We were framing our lives in light of the story. And what Paul is saying is that when we believe in the resurrection, we know that a new world is breaking forward. And we know that what we're doing here in a certain sense, I mean, the resurrected body of Jesus was the present breaking in, the future breaking into the present. And when we work in the Lord, our present is connected to the future. N.T. Wright, commenting on this uh, text in 1 Corinthians 15, says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 implies what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. 
Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world All of this will find its way through the resurrection power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. What we do in Christ and by the Spirit in this present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. This is mind-blowing stuff. The fact that we could actually be engaged in work in a way that I don't know how, but that's going to be a part of the world that God is bringing. This is our hope. It's not in vain because this life is not all there is. All work done in light of the resurrection of Jesus is work that will somehow, even the smallest act, even a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, or if you work for L.A. County Waterworks, redesigning the entire way in which clean water is given to L.A. County. Whatever that work is done, when it's done in the name of Jesus, it is part of that world that is breaking in. You may say, yeah, but what does that mean in terms of my dreams? My dreams. You know, some people have a vision. And, you know, this is good news because for many of us, sometimes we don't know if our dreams for work are ever going to be completed. You know, one of the things that motivates us is to have some kind of vision. But sometimes that's threatened. And, and here's the good news that with this understanding that this life is not all there is, that totally changes our understanding of how our work will someday be brought into its fullness. J.R.L. Tolkien, who is the author of uh, The Lord of the Rings, also wrote a little book called Leaf by Niggle. It's a little short story. And in it, it's the story of an artist named Niggle who had a vision of a beautiful tree. He began his artwork but was never able to complete the picture because of distractions and events. And eventually, he realized he was dying, and all he had was a leaf. That's all he had. And he had this vision of this beautiful tree, and he dies. But when he gets to heaven, lo and behold, there is the entire tree in all of its beauty. And, and the story is really based on Tolkien's life. When he was writing The Lord of the Rings, you know, the war broke out. He had all these things, and he, he, had, he was just so terrified that he wasn't going to be able to complete his, his magnum opus. And that's when he had this dream. It's based on a dream he had about this artist. And it's based on this idea that all of our work somehow, if done in the name of Jesus, is going to be a part of some masterful symphony. So there's an act of faith when we do things in the name of Jesus, even when they're small, because they'll somehow be woven into that. When we get a new boss, when we work off a new narrative, we can have a entirely different motivation and we can have different results. So let me bring the horses in the stable. I could talk all morning. I just love this subject. I just love it. But let's bring the horses in the stable. Let me just give you three different results uh, as a result of working off of a new, mer- uh, new narrative with a new boss. And the first one is this. When work is redeemed, we don't have to have the burden of making people happy. You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to please people, but why in the world would we give that to a fallible human being? <laughs> right? If Ultimately, the weight of whether, you know, you're looking to whoever it is above you to validate you, that's a vulnerable place to be. And sometimes it's an ugly place to be. I, I used to work at UPS when I was in college. The person that was above me, 
oh my gosh, it was I was splitting this belt. You know, I had, they had like 12 cars behind me. I have to look at every address and in a split second decide which one of those 12 cars this box is going into at like three in the morning. Lord Jesus, you know. And sure enough, you'd get the box in the wrong place. And the, the, who was the woman in charge of the whole thing, very angry person, she would, I mean, I probably could be rich if it happened today, but she would take the box and throw it back at me and scream at me, you know. That was a vulnerable place to be. And I was just praying, Lord, let me do this for you and let me love this woman, you know. And that got me out of it because it could have been crushing. I actually ended up reporting her and some things happened, but uh, no money though. I'm still a pastor. I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, but it also releases us from the twin problems of laziness and overwork. When we're, when we're working for the Lord, you know, what are those two? There's two temptations. One is, is that because of the fall, like, what's the point? We just become lazy. But if God's always seeing, then suddenly you have a different motivation, and it releases you from that. But it also releases us from the danger of overwork, and overwork's a big problem. It's a big problem. You know, I just re- read recently, uh, as we're thinking about global health crises, um, here's one um, we haven't heard about. Research has shown that many people die each year, more people die each year from heart disease and stroke due to overwork than those that die of malaria. Talk about the invisible killer, overwork. And a lot of that is an attempt to make a name for ourselves, as it says with the Tower of Babel. You know, when, when God is already willing to give us our name, God can, God, we, we try to make a name for ourselves. That means we try to find success and achievement and some kind of validation for our life to justify our existence. And God, all he wants to give us a name my beloved child, which there is no greater name than to be a child of God. So it gets rid of those two problems. But then finally, um, it brings great joy. When you are working for the Lord, when you are doing what you're doing in the name of Jesus, there is tremendous joy in that. And, And it's an exercise to learn how to do that. But as you learn more and more how to do that, how do you do it? More and more you learn. I mean, it starts with just little things like, okay, Lord, you know what? I'm just going to do this small act just as an act of gratitude for all you've done for me. Start with something small, like I'm going to wash this cup. The next cup I wash, Lord, I'm doing this for you. You know, it's a practice we have to get into. Lord, the next class I'm going to step into and pay attention and love my students, I'm doing it for you. Just this one, I'm going to really try to focus. And it's, an, it's almost like a muscle you can build. There's someone who became like a heavyweight in building those muscles. His name was Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence was a monk who worked in the kitchens. His job was just to be a dishwasher, okay? So, but he got so good at washing dishes in the name of the Lord for Jesus that he experienced dishwashing, and people wanted to be, like, they wanted to wash dishes with this person because he had so much joy in washing dishes, you know? And then people actually wrote him letters like, tell us, how did you get to this place where you love washing? You find so much joy in washing dishes. And there's a book. You can buy a book. Him just like corresponding. He's a humble monk about how he came to learn how to serve the Lord in his work and how it became for the master. And, and he writes in there, the time of business doesn't differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in a great tranquility as if I were on my knees. Amazing. In the words of Eric Liddell, when I run, I feel his his pleasure. So there's radically different things that can be happening in our work. 
And the story is told of three guys that were chiseling stone. And a person came up and said to the first guy, said, what are you doing? He said, can't you see what I'm doing? I'm working myself to death. Came at the second person said, what are you doing? The person said, I'm working for minimum wage. Came up to the third person and said, what are you doing? And he said, with a big smile on his face, I'm building a cathedral. It's all about what are you working for? Who are you working for? Do you feel his pleasure when you work? Do you feel the presence of God when you work? Do you see your work as a way in which you are to meet Jesus and do it for Jesus as an act of worship? So how do we do that? How do we become the Brother Lawrences that we're called to be? Uh, Just a couple final practical things. Number one, bring your work to church. You're like, whoa, 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 what? Bring your work to church. What do I mean by that? When we come here, this is an escape time. This is a time for us to enter into Jesus' land, and we're just like, oh, and then we go back to reality. No. Bring your, your trumpets and your ashes. Bring the things that are troubling you from work. Bring the things that are hard. Bring all that in here, and during this time, pray for your fellow employees. Bring them. Someone has been bringing a, a fellow employee recently who I think they're on the verge of becoming a Christian. It's exciting. But, but this is our mission field. Amy's mission field is teaching math. You know, all of us have mission fields. But so we come in here to pray and pray over that and ask God to use us and to be with us in that. Secondly, don't just bring your work to worship, but bring your worship to work. You know, worship usually involves rituals. Most work, it's like you just have these rituals you do over and over again, you know, like, okay, one more day, I'm going to go through these rituals, pretty much ritual-based. Use those rituals as little cues for worship. I know a physician that before uh, she would go into her next patient's room, she would touch the doorpost and just, just, you know, and just with her eyes open, just to herself, say a prayer for that patient. I know a plumber that would sit outside in his truck before he'd go to the next person's house and would say a prayer for that person, say a prayer. My mailman I know is a Christian. I've never asked him, but I know he's praying for me because he listens attentively to me, and he's got this joy as he's delivering mail, and the questions he asks, I'm like, and I, next time I see him, I'm going to ask him, like, you're a Christian, right? You've been praying for me. Because, I mean, I told him about something like a year ago. He asked me a question, and he just asked me again about that, and he's kind of like, like, give me his look. I'm like, you're a Christian. So take the rituals of your work and use those as opportunities for worship. If you're an employer, show up early. Walk the factory floor. Pray for your employees. Go through each self. Pray for them. Ask God to be with them. Ask God for their families. Uh, Maybe get early to the office and open up your Bible and take your shoes off as as a reminder that this is holy ground. This is just as holy a ground as churches. And God wants to work in this space. And then finally, just like I was saying, practice the presence of God. Practice doing little things for God. Brother Lawrence says, it is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. Practice flipping an omelet just for the love of God. Like, Lord, you have loved me so much. You've done so much for me. I'm going to flip this omelet for your glory. Like little acts of joy, little bursts of praise, little acts of love towards God. You know, we think, well, that's silly. No, it's not silly. You're a parent. You know, when your kid brings some little something, like, oh, here, I think it. You're just like, whoa, let's put that on the wall, you know? You don't think God doesn't celebrate when we do little acts of love? At your work, just stop now and say, okay, this next thing I'm going to do, it's going to do for you. This next student, 
that I'm going to do a math, talk math with, I'm going to do this for you, Lord. I know, uh, that didn't really work, did it, Amy? It's okay. Uh, but apply it. You know, what is that? Because this is what it comes down to. It's all about reminding ourselves that our work is holy ground and that God is there. God is there just as much as God is here. And God wants to use our work, and it is the place in which we are sent to love and serve God. And this is the power we have as believers. Jesus said, I will never leave or forsake you. It doesn't matter what your work situation is like. I'm there with you. And so practicing the presence of God and reminding ourselves that the Lord is with us and live into that as we are at work, continually reminding ourselves that the God of the universe is with us as we work, and we can work in a way that is an expression of gratitude to him for what he's done. And even our most difficult work, even the worst days, we as believers, those of us who know the love of God because of what Christ has done, we can have God with us there in our work. And how can we do that? How can we take our work and offer it to a holy God as sinful people? Think about that for a second. How can we do that? We can do that because in God's greatest act of work, He did it alone. You know, the promise is, is that God will be with us and that we can simply invoke his presence anytime and offer our sinful hands the work that we have, and God embraces that because Jesus faced the most difficult work that's ever been done, and he did that alone for us on the cross with great drops of sweat and blood. He worked alone so we don't have to work. He worked tirelessly to the point of death so that we can turn to him and we can hear him say, I love you. It's all been paid for. And out of my grace, I want to receive your gifts of work. Praise be to God.